Okay, brothers and sisters, if I can have your attention. Thank you. We're, we'll try to come to order. Good to see everyone again today. So we have entered part three, the doctrine of God's creatures. But I think it's interesting that, no, it's not because I'm wrong in what I was about to say. Anyway, uh, we only have five chapters, four chapters under this general, we, we started with the, um, with the doctrine of the word, then we went to the doctrine of God. Now we're going to what the Bible teaches about his creation. <coughs> and it's natural, we've already considered him as, as the creator of the whole universe. But there are these beings that he also created at the dawn of creation. And uh, they're called angels, as you know. So a chapter is given over to that aspect of creation and we'll be looking at other aspects. So I hope that you found this chapter, <laughs> well, most importantly, edifying and enlightening. I was almost going to say, I hope you found it fascinating. Well, that's not the goal, but it is fascinating. Um, I think if you read the chapter, it it's almost feels sometimes like it's raising more questions than it's actually answering. Our minds start going crazy with all kinds of questions. You know, like, for example, about guardian angels, so forth. So... But it's, it's a delightful study. And if you haven't read the chapter, I would still encourage you to read it. Remember, it, it takes the whole of um, five minutes a day to read the chapter. I'm assuming you can read a page in five minutes. Of course, you want to think about it. But it's very easily read. And again, Dr. Allison has labored, I think, successfully at getting it down to a, um, a level, an accessibility, let's put it that way, of understanding. It's like, well, I'm not understanding everything you're saying, but I'm getting, the, I'm getting the bulk of this. So I think we all will be continuing to say that as we sit under his teaching by way of what he's written. Now, since I'm the teacher, I think I probably have the right to do this. You can tell me later if you disagree. But there's one little spillover from last week that I want to take a few minutes to consider together. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Old Testaments to Isaiah 46. If you guys ask me to go back to a spillover, I might not do it. <laughs> I'm sovereign over this in a small S way, because <laughs> I'm the teacher. Uh, but I want you to here's, see something just overwhelming about our God. And remember last week, we were considering God's providence, his absolute control over everything that exists in the universe down to the smallest particle of an atom. His absolute perpetual control over all of these things. It's just mind-boggling when you think of the vastness of the universe and then when you think of the complexity of the minutia. It's absolutely staggering that our God not only called it all into existence, but is actually sustaining it and controlling it 
to accomplish His purposes resulting in His glory. That's, that's overwhelming. What, what kind of a God this is. In fact, um, the, way I, the way I put it last week, <clears throat> and I never got to it, because we just had so much helpful discussion. I, you know, I always want to deal with the so what of whatever we study. You got to say, so should this make any difference in my life? And I jotted down last week a couple of implications, and this is the way I wrote the first one. Big view of God. What kind of a God can not only speak the universe into existence out of nothing, but actually keep it functioning as it was designed to function by preserving it and by perpetually energizing it, even its minute properties, to do exactly what they were designed to do and at the same time be governing and directing the totality of all the minutiae to spontaneously accomplish to simultaneously accomplish his quadrillions of quadrillions of purposes. And that number is way too small. What kind of a God can do that? How majestic is such a God? How glorious is such a God? And, and secondly, and this is the only other one I wrote down, because I was going to draw you out. We won't do that today. And if he is not only your God, but your personally heavenly Father, he's everybody's God in the sense that he created and everybody's going to stand before him. But I'm talking about your personal heavenly Father. If he is that to you, lovingly committed to your care for you until you are safely in heaven, how worthy is he of your implicit trust and how much perpetual joy and peace should you actually possess if this is your God? I mean, really, should we be a fearful, worry, worrisome people if this is our God? To the extent that we are, that's a measurement of our unbelief. That's a me measurement of our practical atheism. We say we believe not only in God, but in this kind of a God. And then when we fret and we worry, and we stew, at those moments, we're not believing in him. It's as though he didn't even exist. But he's so worthy of all this. So that was last week. And the passage here in Isaiah 46 is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, starting with verse 8. God says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. Now, here God is talking about himself. And obviously, that's, that's what we need to know, God's definition of God. For I am God, and there is no other. I put in the margin right by that verse, exclusive. I am God, and there is none like me. I put unequaled. Declaring the end from the beginning. So if I put on this board um, a timeline, that, and this is the end, when God wraps it all up. History, we're talking about history here. Right down to the minutia. And this is the beginning. Okay? And this God is able to declare the end. I've done this before in Bible studies. But I can't put enough lines here because it would be, you know, the quadrillions of quadrillions. And we could just say, God, so we're, let's just say we're around here because it's coming in a couple of days, 2019. Can God tell us everything that's going to happen in the entire universe in every day and every hour and every minute of the year 2019? Yep. He can declare the end from the beginning. He can give us the totality of it. So that's what we call omniscience, omni-science. God knows everything. 
So he, when he says declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, he's saying, I know everything. I know what's going to happen. And I wrote next to that omniscience. And then the next verse says, saying, this is what God says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. And you know, you almost have to shout a couple of those words to feel the power of the text. My counsel shall stand. There's no question about it. I will accomplish all my purposes. And I wrote next to that sovereignty. And I wrote under the word sovereignty, infallible. If God just couldn't do one tiny thing that he had planned to do, he wouldn't be infallible, but he is infallible. And then he tells us kind of stuff he does in history. He calls a bird of prey from the east. A bird of prey, you know, like we think of a, of a hawk, uh, a vulture, buzzards. They eat on carrion flesh. But he's really talking about a political leader of another country. He says, whenever I want, I just say, come over here, I want you to punish my nation, my people. They're in disobedience right now. I want you to deal with them. I'm going to bring them to repentance. He can call a bird of prey. And they come and they do what God ordained for them to do. Now notice, and I just put providential there. Now notice the, the rest of that verse. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. Okay, we already talked about his foreknowledge. But a God of foreknowledge doesn't have to speak. He doesn't have to tell us what's going to happen. But he does. There's a lot in the New Testament about what's still going to happen. He's already told us. He has the knowledge. But he's chosen to to speak about many things that are going to happen. He says, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. Again, I will bring it to pass. I will bring it to pass. Nothing God has told us by way of prophecy will fall short of being realized. You know why? Because he's going to make it happen. He's going to make it happen. And then notice the last part of that verse says, I have purposed. And I will do it. Our God is a God who has plans. He doesn't figure out where he's going as things go along. It's all been planned. And it all comes under the little word purpose. And that word purpose includes all of the purposes of God. There's our God, folks. This is the God of providence. And the God of history. And so, you know, the question is, <clears throat> how does our trust in him reflect that persuasion. And I'm going to say again that the more we understand and really believe it, the more we'll live like we really believe it. And when those crises unfold in our lives, the first thought will be, God is in this. It's going to be okay. So I guess it's pretty good for a church to be theological. Huh, might have an effect on your emotional life. Might have an effect on your psychological life. So you see, is there, any, is there any wonder why it's going to take all of eternity for us to exhaust the mindless, infinite depths of God's glory? And we'll never get to the end. Wait a minute, but eternity's going to go forever. That's right. And God is infinite. By definition, he's immeasurable. If you can get to the end, there's a measurement. You can't get to the end. And we'll delight more and more and more and more and more and more and more in God as eternity unfolds. And that's why, as I've said so many times, Jonathan Edwards argues that heaven will get better and better and better and better and better for all of us. Because the more we see of the glory of God, the more we will love him and delight in him. That was a long spillover, but... I think it's, it's probably justifiable 
in light of the subject that's immediately before us. Angels, great subject. Um, very, very interesting. Now, what, what I want to do today is I'm going to try to do the impossible, and that is to move along at a pretty good pace so that we can have a moment or two for implications so that when I raise the so what questions, some of you guys will add to my tiny little list of so what's. So we're talking about angels, Satan, and demons. That seems, sounds like an interesting combination, but actually all of them are angels. And angels fall into two categories, fallen and unfallen. Fallen and unfallen. The fallen angels are Satan and all who joined him in that insurrection. And by the way, it could have been hundreds of thousands. It could have been millions. Somehow we just sort of think about angels. Maybe there's probably 100,000 of them or maybe there's 50,000 of them. Why not 50 million angels? If they're really active in the way this chapter indicates. So we don't know how many. We just know that a great number of angels fell with, with Satan, with Lucifer. And he was their leader and he, he led the insurrection and they bought into it. And they still serve him. They're still following him. So he's, he's the main dog. And all these demons, which we would call his minions, his servants, are working for him. So really, all three of these categories are angels. But just remember, think about those that um, are fallen and those that are unfallen. So that's what our subject is. Now, here's the definition. This is actually my... Yeah, Dave? Um, does that mean they had a choice? Does that mean they had a choice? I'm going to put it this way. Yes. They, um, they were not decreed to rebel against God in a way that made them irresponsible and not responsible for their choice. This is the same thing about salvation. God, there's nothing happens in the universe that wasn't decreed. I'm going to stand by that. Nothing. But the fact that God decrees things doesn't make those who sin less than responsible. We just saw that last week with regard to the people who crucified Christ. It's the worst sin that was ever committed. And yet it said God predestined that to happen. He can do that in a way. He can use the sinfulness of man to glorify himself without uh, leaving the sinner irresponsible. So the same thing is true of these angels. Don't be asking any more philosophical, theological questions like that, brother. <laughs> That's a good question. Jim? Would that kind of go back in line with the last chapter where we're talking about God sustaining and God being meticulously involved in all of his creation? He, he sustains even the angels. So is there, in a sense, a removal of some kind of divine influence on these angels that rebelled where he kind of left them? He wasn't, he wasn't sustaining them morally, in a sense, the right. same way. Is that, he wasn't making them sin. Let's no, but way. he wasn't keeping them from sin either, as no. opposed to maybe no. the good angels. No, and he could have kept Adam and Eve from falling. We all right. know that. Right. But that's what I'm wondering if it's so, just similar. It's the same. There. I think it's, it's a parallel. I think it's the same parallel. But the de but all of those angels are responsible and legitimately will spend eternity in hell for what they did. And yet it's consistent with the decrees of God. You know what that is? That's a mystery. Theologically, it's called an antimony. It means anti-nomos law. It goes against the laws of logic. That can't be, A can't be, A says this, B says that. I don't see how A and B can fit together. It seems illogical. That's a, no, that's an antimony, an antinomy. Um, listen, there's a difference, folks, between things that are illogical and things that are supra-logical. I just said something pretty important. There's a difference between things being illogical in the sense that we can't, you know, that there's something wrong with that. And supra, 
above our logic. So when you see Proposition A about the absolute sovereignty of God and Proposition B about the absolute responsibility of his creatures, angels, and human beings, and that God decrees and yet man chooses to sin, and you say, I don't know how to bring those two together, so I guess I'm going to choose one or the other. It seems to me I guess I'm going to go for A or I'm going to go for B. The Armenians go for B and the Calvinists go for A. But good Calvinists go for both and say, it's beyond me, but it's revealed in Scripture, and I'm happy to bow down before ministry. It's beyond me, it's revealed in Scripture, but I'm happy to bow down before ministry. Are you bowing down? I think we are. But that's what we do. You bow down. You don't have to figure it all out, because you can't figure it all out. He's too glorious. So there's human responsibility for Dave's question, and yours is following up, Jim. So this is my shot at a definition. Angels are spiritual beings created, well, I could have said they are created spiritual beings, but I wanted to put the word this way, spiritual beings created with intelligence and power to worship God and to carry out his purposes on earth, which include mediating revelation, guarding and rescuing his children from danger, as well as someday separating the wicked from the righteous on the day of judgment. That's a long definition. And I don't expect you to write that down or memorize it or anything. But I'm just going to read it again. They're spiritual beings created with intelligence and power to do three things. One, to worship God. We're going to look at a text where they did. They surround the throne. Some of them do and perpetually cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's only fitting that some of the angels would perpetually worship God and demonstrate that he's worthy of worship. So the three things, they're spiritual beings created with intelligence and power to worship God. Secondly, to carry out his purposes on earth. We'll look at a few passages where he sends angels on a mission and they carry it out. Did he send some angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to talk to Lot or not? Did he send an angel to speak to Balaam in, in addition to the donkey talking out loud? Yes. Did he send an angel into the prison cell of the apostle Peter the night before he was going to be executed? Yes. And there's story after story after story after story. And why should we wonder when Hebrews 1.3 says, and I'll save us the time of turning. Hebrews 1.3 says in a rhetorical kind of question way, are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister to those who shall become heirs of salvation? Isn't that what they are? That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Are they not all ministering spirits? So when we talk about the things angels do, in addition to saying worship God, we have to say they carry out his purposes on earth. And another amazing thing they did, which we don't understand very well, is they mediated revelation. That is to say, God speaks from his majestic throne in an intimate way on Mount Sinai, and we think, without studying our Bibles carefully, he just told Moses what he was doing, and he was just giving the law directly to Moses. No. All you have to do is look at, let's do it, Galatians 3.19. And then also we're going to look at Acts 7. So if you want to kind of get both of them ready to go, Galatians 3.19. And don't ask me if I fully understand this because, I mean, you're going to get an answer, a quick answer. No, I don't. But, it's, but, it's, but it's, something's pretty clear here. Galatians 3.19. Why then the law... It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Don't forget about that. Now look at Acts 7.53. Stephen is 
coming not merely to the end of his sermon, but the end of his life. These are his last words as he preaches to the Pharisees who hated his guts. You know, in verse 51, he calls them a stiff-necked people who always resisted the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good way of assuring that you're going to get stoned. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law. You had this wonderful revelation from God as delivered by angels and did not keep that law as delivered by angels. So what I'm saying is God is revealing himself in an intimate way with Moses and he's giving his people his law. And Moses is going to become the law giver. But don't forget that somehow angels are in between. The only thing I can conclude, and I've tried to do some reading on this, is that God had the angels actually speak and give this law to Moses. We have to conclude that because of what it says. Do we understand it? No. How did it actually work? Have no idea. Can only guess. Don't need to know. If I need to know, it would be in the Bible. So, back to my definition. Angels are spiritual beings created with intelligence and power to worship God, to carry out God's purposes on earth, which would, which would be mediate, one of the purposes would be mediating revelation and guarding and sometimes rescuing his children from danger, as well as separating the wicked from the righteous on the day of judgment. So it's really helpful to just keep saying to yourself, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth? Who sent them? God. What are they? They're spirits. Sometimes they take a bodily form. Are they not all ministering spirits? Ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall become the heirs of salvation? And that really brings us in. And there's a whole lot of mystery about this. How are they ministering in our lives? The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about that. And the danger is to over-speculate. I mean, angeology, which is the technical term for this doctrine, also becomes a kind of cultic worship. Angels are not to be worshipped. They're creatures. They're creatures. Some of them fell and will soon be in hell. They're wonderful creatures. God brought them into existence. In their essence, they're spiritual. Let me just throw this out there. The whole wing thing, if you look at the passages that speak about the angels with wings, doing this, doing that, those are all symbolic. Is it possible that God would someday cause those angels to have some kind of a physical bodily form that had wings? Yeah, it's very possible. But all this cherub stuff of angels with wings, it's all unbiblical. But there are some passages that symbolically portray them with wings because normally creatures that have wings fly and they move rather quickly from one place to another. And they expedite the will of God as he sends them on missions. But we got to be careful, folks. <clears throat> There's two dangers. One is to not appreciate the reality of angels and what they might be doing in our lives. And I would say that's our default as Reformed Christians. Our our default is not to adequately appreciate the ministry of angels. Because we're so afraid of what's going to happen. I'm not going to worship angels. And it's like God is saying, I'm not asking you to worship. I'm asking you to appreciate why I created them. They're ministering spirits set forth to minister to those who shall become heirs of salvation. I guess that's us. They have some ministry in our lives, but be careful about speculation. It'll lead you into some kind of angel worship, and we don't want to go there. So, I guess it's time to look at a couple of passages of Scripture 
If you, why don't you just jot this down if you didn't, and we'll not turn there. Psalm 148, <clears throat> 25 tells us that, or, excuse me, Psalm 148, 2, comma, 5, verse 2 and verse 5, 2 and 5, Psalm 148, tells us that God created angels. I don't think you need actually to see the text to believe that, you, because God created everything, which has to include angels. But in Revelation 4, and I'm not going to turn us here, but jot this down, Revelation 4, 6 through 8. That's, that's the passage from which we have that wonderful song, Holy, 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 Lord, so forth. That's what the angels are doing 24-7. They're called the four living creatures, which, by the way, could be another category, because there's the category of... Uh, guardian, uh, guardian angels, there's the category of cherubim, and there's the category of seraphim, and there's the category of arch, archangel. But these were the cherubim, it tells us in Revelation 4. So one of the purposes for their existence is to worship God and to demonstrate and to be an example to us. If they're worshiping him perpetually, he must be worthy of perpetual worship. So I want to worship him as perpetually as I can. They have a freedom we don't have. And they're not dealing with sinful human nature either, by the way. And we are. So that's uh, Revelation. And I've quoted Hebrews 1.14. It's one of the most significant verses in the whole Bible as to the purpose of angels. So please, I've quoted it about five times now. They're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. So there's there's a lot of things that they do and that they did in the Bible. And, um, you know, I had this thought, and I shared this last night with a uh, few people, including Dave and Donna. This is one concordance. There are bigger concordances. A concordance is a book that takes the words of the Bible and shows you every verse in the whole Bible that that word is used. And this one is not exhaustive, but it's very, very thorough. So I look up angels, and <clears throat> I find that, first of all, they gather all the cases where the word is in the singular, angel, an angel did this, or the angel of an angel from God, or an, the angel of the Lord. Then, you know, there are 15, 20 of those. And then I start looking at angels. And it's, it's actually, <laughs> it's pretty overwhelming. You can't see the fine print, but there's, there's like two or three columns of verses about angels. So if you got intrigued one day and started spending, oh, a half hour a day for about a month, looking up each of those verses and seeing what did that angel do? What was, what was, what was going on there in that case with angels? And you, you might say he delivered Peter, he woke him up in a prison cell and caused the gates to open up and let him out of the prison and out of the city. He delivered one of God's people. He said, hmm. Angels deliver God's people. And you start writing down all of the things that angels do. And you know what? Then you would start, if you have a logical propensity, you'd start kind of putting them into categories. What angels do for God. What angels do for his children what angels are going to do on the last day of judgment. By the way, what are they going to do? You guys tell me, what are the angels going to do according to Matthew 13, 41 through 43? Are they going to have anything to do with the day of judgment? Yeah. What? Separate. Separate. Yeah. Separate. And you know, when you think about that, and we need to help our children and our grandchildren understand this, unbelieving children on the day of judgment will be violently, omnipotently, irresistibly torn away from their parents and put on his left side. And they will no doubt scream at the top of their lungs, Mommy, Daddy, 
Papa. Too late. The Bible teaches us that the angels are going to separate the wicked from the righteous. So, my, my point about the uh, concordance is, wouldn't something like that be kind of fun? Why just do it with angels? And at the end of your little process, no matter how well you did or how poorly you did, guess what you just became? A systematic theologian. You're systematizing what the Bible teaches. That's a very, very productive study. So we're enjoying the fruit of the systematic labors of Greg Allison, who enjoyed the fruit and draws much from the systematic labors of Wayne Grudem, who enjoyed the fruit and benefited much from the systematic labors of Louis Burkhoff. But it's a great thing to do. So I'm kind of encouraging all of you to, when you read and study your Bible, always have a note, some, some paper there, a notebook. Always jot down thoughts. Start seeing patterns. Start wondering about stuff. And you, you might actually be surprised. And this actually happened to me this week. And I hope I can illustrate it on the board behind me in just a second. So... By the way, here's one that maybe we should just look at, because I, I quoted so many, and I feel in a sense like I'm not doing justice, but I'm hoping you'll follow up. Will you turn to Psalm 91, 11, and 12? This is just about angels watching over us. Wow, that just made a thought just flash into my mind. I'm telling you, when, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I went to a concert focusing on Negro spirituals, that great genre of music that came out of an excruciating period in the history of our nation. When those poor slaves had no hope but God. And many of their songs are about eschatology. God, please come, it's the only hope I have. I know of one that's unbelievable, Kathleen Battle, you know who Kathleen Battle is? You like her? She sings, How come me here, Lord? How come me here? Oh, break your heart. She says, They stole my children away, Lord. They treat me so mean here. But anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. Jonathan Poland sang, and I'm going to use an, a word that has to do with angels, in a seraphic way. That's a nice adjective. Use the word seraphic sometimes. Honey, that pie was seraphic. <laughs> it was angelic. Only an angel could have made a pie like that. Jonathan Poland sang a spiritual called... Um, Let's see, now, now the, do you remember, Tim, were you there that night at that Presbyterian church when we... Okay, here's what it is. came to me. Were you there or not? Okay. He sang, angels watching over me. And one time I had him do it here. That may be live in here. And it's based on the guardian work of angels. Now... Can we go too far with that? I've already said so. Don't get don't get on the guardian angel wagon and go wherever it may where your heart may want it to go. But don't throw out the guardian angel either, because look at Psalm 91, 11, and 12. I'm the only one that didn't turn there. <laughs> What's wrong with you guys? Do what I say. For he will command his angels concerning you. And these are words that Jesus quotes to the devil. But they're not just for Jesus. To guard. Guard? Hmm. I wonder if you could call such a person a guardian. To guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So... Do we or do we not have angels in our lives often guarding us? The answer is yes. Do we know it? No. But we know God was in it. Do they always guard us? No. 
Because if they did, none of us would ever have a broken leg. But God knows when and when not to protect us. But the point is, folks, the devils are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation. And one of the things they do when it is the will of God is they guard and they protect us and we don't see them. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews also said to show hospitality to people because you may find out that you are showing hospitality to an angel. So do you see the balance? We're not going to go... We're not going to go. We're not going to get drunk on the wine of what the Bible teaches about guard, angels guarding us. But neither should we conclude that they just don't do anything or whatever they did, they just did during the apostolic era. Is that what Hebrews 1.14 says? Now, did they do certain things during that era that they may not be doing today? Possibly. I mean, that, that's, that's some really supernatural stuff going on in Acts 12 and other such passages. But then again, we don't know when angels may do, be doing something for us. And, I, and, I, and so we don't worship angels, and it doesn't mean that every day you've got to be, God, thank you for the, whatever the angels did in my life today. But it wouldn't hurt once in a while to say, God, I imagine that in some ways angels have been serving me because your word says so. And I don't know how, but I thank you for that. Yeah, Dave? Can angels, and I don't have any basis of anything on this, but can uh, angels possess people as demons possess people? And thus, in physical form, be used of God in that way? That was philosophical. You asked him not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, Dave, you know, when you say could they, the answer always has to be yes, if it were the will of God. Is there any revelation in the Bible that angels incarnate themselves in people the same way demons do? I would say no. I know of no such revelation. I just think what the Bible teaches us is that they're there to uh, sometimes to guard and to protect us and to deliver us. And beyond that, we don't know what they're doing or not, but there's no teaching whatsoever that the spirit of an angel would incarnate a human being except a fallen one, and because that is precisely what the demons do. And so you've led me to, to that. So it's, a good, it's an interesting question that I don't think there's any. If any of you know of passages that teach that angels do that, yeah. So the verse that says about hospitality <laughs> might be entertaining angels, Mm -hmm. So that would be an angel that took the form of a human, not an mm -hmm. angel entering mm -hmm. a, a human who's already Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And we could look at the passages where, you know, I don't, I don't think Abraham at first realized when they saw those three men that, uh, that they were angels. And by the way, one of them was the incarnate Christ. Because whenever you read in the Bible, the angel of the Lord, almost without exception, it's Christ. Because angel means messenger. He's also called prophetically the messenger of the covenant. Jesus is the ultimate messenger in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh so he's the he is the angel of the lord but demon possession is a real thing it's real in the bible and it's real today and it may not be as manifest in the United States as it is in other parts of the world. I know our friends like Andy Hamilton, my own son, who've been to India and different places of the world, have seen what they, they are compelled to call demon possession in terms of the behavior, the, the, uh, just the bizarre, wicked, vile, violent behavior of people. And they've actually seen, they've seen people experience exor exorcism. Now you can say Andy Hamilton is, you know, that's, that's not my theology, but um, it might need to be in your theology. So there is such a thing as demon possession. Now, here's what I want to do for your encouragement, if I can do this quickly. And I, I, I confess to you that I'm kind of jumping, but I, I actually do have a, an outline. <laughs> it's definition of angels. And then, in other words, what are they? And Satan and demons, what are they? Satan is a fallen angel. If you want to write this down, Isaiah 14, 
and Ezekiel 28 are probably um, descriptions of the expulsion of Satan out of heaven, but they also refer to an earthly king. It has a double meaning. The king of Tyre was a very arrogant man. But it seems that God used those two passages. And I, I guess we should quickly look at Jude 2, or 2 Peter 2.4, even if I don't get to what I want to get to. 2 Peter 2.4, this is what it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and then he's making an argument, if. And if he did not spare, he's going to a conclusion, but I'm just saying the if includes that angels, uh, when they sinned, were not spared, but they were cast not only out of heaven, but apparently some of them already in a place of torment. That becomes a debatable subject, by the way, among theologians. But then notice, please, Jude 6. Jude 6. All I'm doing is showing you that what happened to these angels. They followed Lucifer, who is still now their master. And in verse 6 it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, that is when they were yet in heaven and in the service of God, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So this is the fall of angels. And by the way, the ones that fell are were not elect. And right now I'm trying to see where the verse was. of uh, It's in 1 Timothy where um, Paul refers to the elect angels. And I apologize that I don't see that verse right now, but if any of you happens to find it, you're welcome to just stick up your hand and say it's such and such. But there's a verse that says, so someone asked me the other day, so what, what keeps the good angels from falling like the ones who fell? And I just said, election. Election. You're not going to apostatize. None of you are. You're going to fall down like Spurgeon says on board on the ship many times during the storm, but you're not going to fall overboard. Yeah, Wesley? I think it's First Timothy 5.21. Read that. Read that a little bit loudly. First Timothy 5.21. That is what it is. Okay. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. Okay, you can stop. In the presence of the elect angels. What's that about, Paul? What do we have to conclude when he says that angels are elect? We have to conclude that angels are elect. That's what I conclude. I conclude that from all eternity, God chose them for his purposes and determined that they would never fall out of his graces. But obviously the ones who followed Satan and were cast out of heaven were not elect angels. All right. Do I still have time? I think I do. This is my last call to me. Um, as I was reading, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Let's see if we can do this quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. And then I'm going to ask someone to uh, read that pretty loudly so that those who are uh, listening by um, recording... We'll, we'll hear what you're reading. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 24. Out loud, please. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Okay, all rule, authority, and power. Okay. Now... I'm going to suggest to you that this represents angels in the heavenly realm. Just try to think of these things in that way and accept my, my presupposition. All, uh, did it say above all rule and authority and power? Is that what it said? What did it say once more? When he has abolished all... Abolished. 
Okay, when he's abolished. No, would he abolish good angels, elect angels? No. So I'm going to put a little asterisk by this and say that these words, rule, authority, and power, have to do with demons. Now somebody please read for me, and I'm going to go ahead and give these passages out. Uh, and maybe a male voice would be helpful. If you, you ladies feel like you can bellow it out, raise your hand, and we'll call you uh, Bella somebody. Bellow somebody. No. Um, some women have voices that we could easily hear, and you're welcome to join. I need somebody to take Ephesians 1.21. Who's got it? Miss Patsy said she could. Miss Patsy, she's the one. She looked. But then the thing is, the thing about Patsy is she likes to stand up on a chair. I always hate that when she does something like that. That's so funny. I'm glad you said that. Ephesians 1.21, who's got it? Jim's got it. Ephesians uh, 3.10, who's got it? You can just take it. You don't have to already have it. Pastor Keith has it. Ephesians 6.12, Larry's got it. Colossians 2.15, Dave's got it. And one final passage, 1 Peter 3.22. Pastor Mark's got it. Okay, let's give, give me Ephesians 1.21, please. Read it out loud so everyone can hear. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Interesting. He uses the same words in the same order. Okay, but we don't know if he's talking just about elect angels. We do know that he's over them, or if he's talking about fallen angels. Somebody read out loud, please, um, Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. <clears throat> Was it authority, Pastor Keith? Yes. Rulers and authorities. Okay. Okay, so notice again. Rule, authority, power. Rule, authority, power. Rulers, authority. Somebody please read verse uh, Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What was it after powers, Larry? Rulers, powers, or rulers, and what then? Uh, rulers, powers, yeah, powers, and world forces in, in the NASB. Okay. I'll just stick with rulers and powers right now. And then, please, and by the way, in that context, it's clearly talking about the evil, the evil <clears throat> angels. Someone please read Colossians 2.15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Rulers and authorities. And what did he do to them, Dave? The first part of the verse, having what? Triumphed over them? Uh, when he had disarmed the rulers. Disarmed. Has God disarmed the holy angels? No. This is obviously, so I'm going to put another asterisk here. And then I think we have one last passage. It's 1 Peter 3.22. So who had that? Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and what was the last one? Powers? Yeah. Powers. Okay, so when you compare scripture with scripture, and by the way, there's none of you that cannot do what I what I'm doing right now, because you look at your little footnotes and say, "Hey, there's a verse of scripture over here." It sounds like it, and all of a sudden you start saying, "Well, that's interesting." Rule authority, rule authority, rulers authority, rulers powers, rulers authorities, and you start seeing that Paul is at least three times, maybe four times using those words to describe the fallen angels who are in the heavenly places. The devil is called the prince and power of the what? The of the air. Which means you're breathing air. This is his domain. The ones that are not in any place of confinement. So yeah, Wesley? May I add one more? Sure. Um, 
Romans 8.38, it's a lot before this, of course, but it says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers. That's so right. it's got a few of those. And in that context, um, those are probably not fallen, aren't they? I've, I wasn't listening. Well, it, it actually talks about how we're going to oversee. It says, and all these things are more than conquerors to him who loved us. And, it says, and then it gives quite a long list. And it says, none of those things will be able to separate us. So it may be, of course, holy angels wouldn't want to separate us. So it's probably another reference. So what was it? Angels and what else, Wes? Um, angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers. And there's more to it. Those, powers, those okay. All right. Anyway, all I'm saying is look at, the, look at these categories. So a lot of them have to do with um, the fallen angels and the judgment that's going to come to them, which if you want to know... You just can jot down Matthew uh, 25, because in Matthew 25, we, uh, I forget which exactly which verses it is, he, we, we read about the angels, I think it's around verse 41 or 42, something like, yeah, 43, 41 through 43, and then 49 and 50. They're going to separate the wicked from the righteous. Our time is gone. This is what I want to say to you, folks, and... The subject of angels. Who would have thought? We could study the study of angels for a month pretty good here. You should see what Grudem, Grudem has written so helpfully on angels. And this is also accessible and readable. And Gene gave me this nice book by Billy Graham, actually quite theological about the role of angels, somewhat speculative here and there. But folks, this is what I want to say. Be thankful for angels. This is my so what. How they worship God. Let's imitate them. How they serve God. Let's imitate them. They're quick to serve God. They're ready to serve God. So we can be thankful and we can seek to be like angels in that regard. And regarding demons, I want to say this. Be aware that the demon world is real and demons hate Christians. They can't control us, they can't damn us, they can't take away our salvation. But the last time you got tempted, you probably didn't have a direct visit from the devil. If you think you did, you probably have a problem with arrogance. It's a world of how many billion? Five billion? How many, Mark? Seven. Seven billion people. Seven billion people in the world. And you, out of all the seven billion, got a personal visit from, from Satan. That's really... You must be quite fearful to him. But he has, how can the devil work so hard worldwide if he only has 75,000 angels? That's not going to take care of Miami. That's not going to take care of Houston, the six million. So be aware, and God protect me today from the wiles of the devil who will come to me through his minions. And that's why the Bible says, resist the devil until he flees to you. We can think of it as a visit from the devil through his minions. Ultimately, the devil's behind it. And my last word of application is be comforted and encouraged in knowing that all the spiritual forces of darkness are under the feet of our Savior. And that's why I wanted you to see this. He's over it all. And that's why they can't beat us. Patrick, you ever had a conversation with a either a simple-minded person or a person who can get caught up in the fear of demons and the devil or the wonder of angels, it is best to constantly circle back to what you're saying. Jesus is the Lord of them. Good, good, you know, because good. Because there are people who, who good counsel. theological, right? Just, you're not capable. But you, you just, and I, I've had to do this, uh, just keep circling back. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And you can trust in him. Excellent counsel. Thank you for that application. Um, hey, Gary, would you lead us in a closing prayer? Sure. Thanks. Dear God, we come before you this day again. Another week, another time. Pastor Ted's direction and teaching from your word and from our benefit. Thank you for the many things that we are learning and hopefully have a better understanding about this class. We ask you to continue to bless, bless those who are here.
today and those who were unable to attend and pray that we just all have a great day and plus uh, teaching and singing is to come forth. Amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Yes. I stopped it. I stopped it. Yeah, good.